Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning and dedicated to practicing being in right relationship. We're very glad you're here. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine in everyone. And so one of the ways that we greet the divine on a Sunday morning is by turning to the people around us and welcoming them here. Let us say together the words by which we light the chalice, which is the symbol of our faith. We light the fire of truth and ask to be clear, wise, and humble enough to admit when we don't know. We kindle the warmth of community and ask for open-heartedness and patience. We are grateful to the spirit of life and ask to learn the secret to loving and being loved. The words of Israel Moore Aylvor, an inspirational writer and speaker born and educated in Ghana. Don't be a pepper on the eyes of people. Rather, be the salt on their tongue and make a difference that influences their sense of belonging to the earth. In so many situations, it is of great use to know what you're doing. And one of the ways that we remind ourselves what we're doing here is we wrote a mission statement and we wrote it on the wall and we say it together on a Sunday. Together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Our moment for beloved community today has actors. There are three ways of trying to get to know somebody that we are going to show you this morning. Two of them are bad. The third one is one way that works. Oh, hello. Where are you from? I'm confused. I'm from Austin. No, no, I mean, where are you really from? Like, like maybe Asia or, or the Middle East? The where are you from, no, where are you really from questions subtext is you aren't from here. You look different. Maybe you're not American. I don't know what to make of you. I need to peg you as something. I need a category for you to be in. This is not a question anyone would ever ask me. No one ever comes up to me and says, what's the story with you? You have such an interesting complexion. What's the story? No one asks for my DNA report. It mostly happens to people of color, but we didn't want to put a person of color through this, so we have a lovely white actor who is looking unusual enough to perhaps prompt the questions. Here is a second way to try to get to know someone. Hello, hello. This is a nice outfit. It's nice. Is it a costume? 
where do people wear things like that? The answer to that question is here. People wear things like that here. I'm right here, and I'm wearing this, and it's not a costume. It is my clothing. Also, please don't touch me until I know you. Don't touch my hair. Don't touch my hat. Don't touch my scarf. Don't touch my necklace. Just get to know me some other way. If you want to know what's in someone's DNA, get to know them for a while, and maybe they will tell you. Here is the best way, or one of the best ways. Hello, my name is Joe. My name's Angela. Would you like to join me in the fellowship hall for some coffee? I would love to, thanks. From her book, The Sweetness of Salt, Cecilia Galante is a white American author of the 21st century. She reached for a tiny white dish on top of the stove. Oops, and salt. I almost forgot salt. Salt? I wrinkle my nose and then widen my eyes. Is that your secret ingredient? Sophie laughed. Salt isn't a secret ingredient, doofus. Besides, you just add a pinch. Salt brings out all the flavors. She paused. It's weird, isn't it? how something so opposite of sweet can make things taste even better. How does it do that, I asked. I don't know, Sophie answered. It just kind of brings everything together in its own strange little way. Let us join together in an attitude of prayer and meditation where we Listen and speak to God as we understand God, or listen to our inner wisdom, or just watch our breath as it comes in and out of our bodies. In all of these ways, we might reach that still point where we could ask for clarity, where we could feel ourselves held in the arms of love, where we can sink our roots into the heart of compassion. Let us enter into the silence together, understanding that in this community, small noises from children and the noises of life count as part of the silence.
Several years ago, I found a book called um, Glass Paper Beans. And so the writer, Leah Hagen Cohen, was sitting in a coffee shop um, in Seattle, of course, and drinking coffee in a glass, reading the paper, and uh, wondering idly, I wonder where this coffee is from, and I wonder how it's harvested, and I wonder how it got here, and I wonder what this glass, how do they make this glass, and what do they make it out of, and how's this newspaper? I mean, I know it's wood pulp, but where does the wood come from, and how do they harvest it? And so she started researching, and it became, or researching, because I'm from Carolina, is she started researching, and um, she wrote a real interesting book. And here, years later, I was baking baguettes, and the only um, ingredients are yeast, water, flour, salt. And I thought it would be interesting to, to do a kind of a glass, paper, beans thing on where does this stuff come from? And so I uh, did a sermon on heat and transformation, which was number one in the baking series. And now I'm going to talk about salt today. And since I was raised in a Christian church, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, Rabbi Jesus saying, you're the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its savor, it's good for nothing except to be trampled underfoot. And I've, I've always wondered about that because Salting the earth is something that enemies do. When they conquer your place, they put salt in your fields so you can't grow anything. That's, I don't think that's what he was talking about. And as, as um, Jeannie Martin said on her way out after the first service, she said, salt is the earth. And I said, well, I'm going to say that in the second sermon. <laughs> that's right. I love when the sciencey people come out and, and enhance the second sermon for me. <laughs> so being salt of the earth just doesn't make that much sense. And also, if the salt has lost its savor, I mean, salt is salt. And when does it lose its saltiness? Never. It's just salt. And the only time it's really obnoxious is when you're trying to salt the salt. And you don't ever try to salt salt because it's already salt. But it's not doing its job if it's with the other salt not doing its job yet. So I started with where does salt come from? And it comes from dried out seabeds and lake beds, salty lakes. It comes from salt flats. It comes from the ocean. It comes from mines. In some mines, people climb down into the earth and cut chunks of salt out of the earth. They still do that. Mostly that's rock salt and we use it for the roads. Um, when you do a mine, you sink a, a well down into a deposit of salt from an ancient ocean that's under the ground, and you force water into it, and the water that comes up has salt in it, and so you evaporate the water from that, and then you have salt. And then some people add iodine. Mostly kosher salt is sea salt, but most table salt is from the mine, where the water gets forced down in there. And... When you start reading about the history of salt, the first um, things that you read about are China. 6,000 years ago, they were using salt, and there was a treatise, a pharmacological treatise that was written 
4,700 years ago that talks about 40 different kinds of salt and their uses, their preparations, how do you harvest them. And mm, it was widely traded in pottery jars like that. The way you would evaporate is you would put a clay, you would put salt water in a clay pot and then you put the pot over the fire and then you get salt. And those were even made um, a unit of monetary exchange. How many salt pots is this worth? How many salt pots is that worth? And so we get the phrase, it's not worth its salt, from that. And maybe you have a pink salt lamp or you have some Himalayan salt in your, um, in your pantry. And that was laid down 500 million years ago uh, before the Himalayan mountains were formed. And um, the people who lived near that were using the salt, but it became widely traded when Alexander the Great rested his army there, and the horses started licking the rocks. And they thought, hmm, maybe there's salt here. And they started mining it and trading it. Still today, the Kera salt mine in Pakistan is the second largest in the world. And it's where you get the culinary pink salt and your pink salt lamps in the New Agey stores. Now, the Egyptians also traded salt, and they are credited with being the first ones to salt food. And now, what happens when you salt food is that it gets preserved. And what happens when you can preserve your food is that suddenly you can travel. You don't just wander in order to find more food. You can take food with you that won't spoil. And so you can travel to visit people or to sell things or to sell the salted food that you have or to sell your pottery or to sell your jewelry that you made. Um, and you, you develop uh, salt roots all over. I mean, not roots like tree roots, but routes, salt route routes around the Mediterranean and up into Europe and down into Ch up into China, everywhere. Uh, some of the first roads were there because people were transporting salt from the salt mines to the sea where they could get on boats and take it places that didn't have salt yet. In the Iron Age in Great Britain, they made salt by boiling seawater in these clay pots. In Rome, they did the same thing. In fact, um, a lot of the Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And um, that's where the word salary comes from. It's rooted in the word salt. That's where the word soldier comes from, they say. Rooted in the word salt. So salt, all of a sudden, when you're thinking of these examples, because I need you to think with me because I still don't understand what Rabbi Jesus meant. But it's a metaphor somehow, maybe. But it preserves things. It helps you travel. It, um, it really helped connect civilizations all over the globe. During the Middle Ages, salt was transported along roads built especially for that purpose. And one of the most famous of these roads is the old salt route in northern Germany, which ran from the salt mines to the shipping ports. Now, you have something that is valuable. People want to control it. So a lot of wars were fought over regions that had salt. And a lot of taxes were put on the salt. 
and a lot of governments tried to have a monopoly on the salt. Um, the salt taxes were one of the triggers for the French Revolution. The salt monopoly that the British, who colonized India, uh, they made it so that only the British could profit from the salt making on the shores of India. And Gandhi led a 23-day march down to the seashore and boiled a handful of salt mud, broke the law. This is called the salt satyagraha. And many people started doing that as well as a protest that started um, moving Indian independence along. In early uh, United States, Massachusetts Bay Colony got the patent on salt, and they kept it for like 200 years so that they could produce salt. I know other people were doing it too, so they didn't really have a lot of enforcement capability. It was like, we're down in Texas making salt. Nobody from Massachusetts is going to march down here and make us stop. The Erie Canal was opened mostly to transport salt. Many states still have salt as an important part of their economies, and the number two state uh, that produces salt is what? Texas. Anybody from Grand Saline, Texas? So it's a town uh, that's kind of east and north of here, and they have... um, visitor center that they call the Salt Palace. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's not really a palace, but they have a good sense of humor there. And um, they're sitting on an ancient seabed, and once you get down to the salt, which is not too far under the surface, the salt deposit is 20,000 feet deep. The... um, Apparently, you cannot lick the courthouse, uh, but you can lick City Hall, which I hope is a metaphor. So what might being salt of the earth mean? What might it mean? It could have so many layers of meaning. The old hellfire and brimstone preachers would say that um, being the salt of the earth means that the Christians, they forgot that there weren't any Christians when Jesus said this, that the Christians (laughs) were supposed to be the preservative to keep moral decay and corruption from happening in our country. And I love that. But I have a very different idea of what moral decay and corruption looks like than they do. Like they're talking about uh, legal abortion and gay people. And to me, moral decay means that you try to prevent poor women from getting a safe and legal abortion. It means that you try to put gay people in a position where they can get fired for being gay and can't adopt children, etc. It means you put asylum seekers in cages forever. It means you have pay-for-profit prisons. It means you have pay-to-play politics. It means that super-rich people face an entirely different legal system than poor people do. And that's what looks like moral decay and corruption to me. 
So I love that, that we are here to preserve our culture from moral decay and corruption. May it be so. And I think about salt, and I think, okay, we come from the sea. Our bodies are, have a lot of salt in them. Our, our blood, our sweat, our tears, all are salty. When we get out of balance in our salt, we get sick. When you go to the hospital, sometimes if you're really sick, they suspend medicines in the saline solution, which is 0.9% salt. Somebody didn't hear the point part, and they said, 9% salt, that would kill you. I'm like, I said, 0.9%. And sometimes they just drip saline solution into your veins. Makes you feel better. Sometimes when you have cedar fever, you get a little bottle of saline solution, you squirt it into your nose, right? It can't hurt you because it's what's in your body. Another thing salt does is it magnifies the flavors of food. You know, if you put a little pinch of salt into your cookie dough, it makes the sweetness have a deeper layer. And if you, if you put salt on something bitter, you have salt receptors or taste buds or whatever you can call them, areas, on the side of your tongue, and they're near the bitterness areas. And sometimes if the salt areas get occupied, the bitterness areas... Uh, get confused and don't taste bitterness. So I'm sure that's very scientific. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I'm a preacher, not a scientist. Anyway, so you sprinkle a little salt on your grapefruit. You sprinkle a little salt on your coffee grounds. When you make coffee, you sprinkle a little salt on your watermelon or on your tomatoes, and you don't taste the, the bitter part of that experience, and it gives a depth to the flavor. You know, if something doesn't have enough salt in it, it tastes bland and flat. So I like that, that we're the salt of the earth and we keep things from being bland and flat. I like that. But if you oversalt something, it's inedible. Don't like that. We don't want to be too much. Thinking about metaphors is really uh, engaging. And you don't always come up with an answer, but it still is fun. And I think, okay, salt on salt, salt of the earth. If you don't get away from yourself, if you don't spread yourself around... It doesn't work because salt of the earth with salt of the earth. I've been to some churches like this where there's salt of the earth, salt of the earth, salt, 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 salt. And too much concentration of people who are salt of the earth, is it can kind of burn you. I was in a church like that for a while. And so I think salt only loses its savor when it doesn't get away from the rest of the salt. When it doesn't spread itself around, when it's not about other places and people and flavors. And so I think, okay, I still don't know what Rabbi Jesus meant. But I have ideas that if we just think of ourselves at some point in the day as salt, what if I were salt right now? What flavors could I bring out? If I'm in a conversation Maybe if I'm in a good place, I'm feeling spiritually strong, I'm feeling like a good person, then I want to have a conversation where I bring out your flavors, where I let you shine, where I, where I let you be your best self, where I, I make 
a space for you or an invitation to you to be the delight of the conversation, the delight of the group. Or maybe um, I'm, I'm feeling like, okay, in this conversation, I could maybe be solved by trying to be a delight to this conversation myself. And um, I think if we consider what it might be to be that part of salt that reminds people that they belong to the earth, if we can be that salt that invites people to taste in more layers, if we can be that salt that brings out the flavor or that somehow, as our reading said, just brings everything together in some way, I think that would be good for the planet. So think about that with me. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our, extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Please sing with me if you care to. The lone wild bird in lofty flight is still with thee, nor leaves thy sight. And I am thine, I rest in thee. Great Spirit, come and rest in me. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.